Well, again, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Brian, and I am the youth pastor here at Southfield, and I have been for a lot longer than I think anyone, including my parents and those closest to me, would have ever dreamed that I would have made it. Uh, I want to start by saying that last week, uh, I think John Beaker did a great job. He, his teaching truly was inspiring, yeah. <clears throat> he pushed us to, to realize that we are called to live a perfect holy and blameless life, but we, we can't do that on our own. We need help. We have to admit our weakness, and in a sense, we have to admit that we need an entire heart transplant. Luckily for us, Jesus chose to lay down his life for us because he knew that he was the perfect match for our organ donation. We get a new heart, and we begin this process of accepting the organ by changing the, the way that we think and the way that we live. It was moving stuff. Furthermore, John inspired me to actually deliver this message via claymation. So I'm actually uh, going to be stepping off and we're going to be watching for the next 30 minutes. At, no, I'm kidding. But I am, like I said, the youth pastor, so things are going to get a little weird, and I apologize for that, but not really. When people hear that I'm a youth pastor or that I work with student ministry, I get a lot of really strange questions. Questions like, oh, so you teach RE, or religious education. Well, yeah, but, but no, we're not, like, it's not a Catholic church, so not in the traditional sense. Wait, so you're telling me that you teach RE, but differently, and you, you're choosing to do this? this well, well, yeah, I, I do. All right, then be honest. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen them eat? And I usually give a, a pretty weird answer, and, and then it's followed immediately by like, okay, but how do you handle the smell? Like, the smell alone would keep me away from students, now, while I get a lot of strange questions, I also get a lot of good questions. Why do you do that? What pushes you to do that job? Just the other day, I was actually getting my hair cut. And as is the standard procedure, I'm at sports clips. And uh, I'm, I'm, I try to go during times when there are games on TV so I can just kind of zone out, get my hair cut, get out. Um, and so, luckily, there's a, there's a basketball game on. I sit down, and, you know, she starts going to work, and, and she started to talk. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <clears throat> so the question always comes up, you know, what do you do? What, uh, what you know, what, what do you do for work? How, why are you here at 3.30? Don't you have work until 5? Well, no. No, I, I teach, but I also, um, my, my primary job is, is as a a leader of uh, student ministries over at Southfield Church in Shanghai. Oh, really? I've never heard of that place. Yeah, I know. But we'd love to have you. And then the conversation stops. <laughs> Continue watching my basketball game. She's going to town. And uh, then she asks another question. Well, hey. And she, it was kind of like under her breath. Well, hey, since you work for a church and all, like, why are we all here? Huh? <laughs> Wait, what? Like, like I, what's the point of life? <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> my brain immediately turned to Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Raggy, help me. In all seriousness, I was totally caught off guard, and I wanted to go <laughs> and go back to watching basketball. Questions like these, though, they're, they're more common than you think. If we're willing to open ourselves up to them, people 
they want to ask. They want to know these answers. And in fact, they've wanted to know these answers for thousands of years. Put yourself in the chair. What would be your answer? How would you respond to why we're all here? Now, luckily, I've done my reading. <laughs> and I truly believe that God does give us that answer to this question in his word right here. The tricky part is that the answers we find in his word don't always fit into the puzzle that we're trying to piece together in our own lives. We're all created with a purpose, but we're often hit with the tension between what God wants and what God's purpose is and what he calls us to do and what we are actually trying to accomplish or what we actually want to do or what we'd rather do. Turn and watch TV and not answer the tough questions. But hopefully today you'll be encouraged by the truth that although it's difficult, it is entirely possible. And in fact, it's very worth it to maintain a healthy and strong faith. Today we're going to be diving into 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll also dip into chapter 3 along the way. Uh, but I want to give you a little bit of insight before we get going. Believe it or not, 2 Timothy is written by a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. Going back to my junior high days, uh, there was a student by the name of Abram Mangato. I don't know where Abram is, uh, but I, I hope he's doing well. And uh, he convinced me, and yes, I'm a pastor's kid, I should know better, but he convinced me that all letters were written to specific people, and it was always their names. So Philippians was actually written to a guy named Phil Ippians. <laughs> Ephesians was short for Ephesians, Eric Ephesians, and I believed it for longer than I should. But this one, in actuality, is written very specifically to one man. Now, while it's written to one man, there are also lessons for us. Uh, it, again, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so he's not just writing to the people that he lived and, and worked and dealt with, but he's also writing to the future. He knows that. So let me provide you with a little more context. He's writing this letter from prison. Things are not going well. He's towards the end of his life, and, and honestly, the outlook is bleak. Paul is not in a good spot. He's writing to Timothy, who at this point had, they had like this parental relationship where Timothy started out like a, a son figure to him, then he moved to a student figure, and finally he moved to a, more of a colleague. We're in this together, spreading the good news, spreading the gospel. We are a team in this. Paul wanted to see Timothy really badly when he wrote this because he felt that everybody else had abandoned him at this point. Timothy was out on assignment in, uh, in Ephesus, and there were some people in, in Ephesus that needed to hear the word, and so Paul is in part writing to give him encouragement to keep up the good work, to keep doing what he's doing, to keep on keeping on. But he also wanted to let Timothy know, hey, there are some leaders in Ephesus that, that don't like the way that I operate. They, they were concerned with how many times he had been thrown in prison. And so they're starting to rebuke his word, and they're starting to, to question whether or not he should be doing the things that he, should, that he should be doing. So he breaks this letter down into two, or we can break this letter down into two primary sections. First, a challenge to Timothy to accept his calling. And second, instructions for how to deal with the corrupt teachers in Ephesus. It seems that this purpose was twofold, to remind Timothy of the calling that God had placed on his life and to encourage him to remain faithful, not to the people, 
that he was serving, but remained faithful to the word, remained faithful to the gospel. And what we see play out in 2 Timothy is a difficult truth that we often face even today as Christians. Following Jesus involves risk and it involves tension. Following Jesus is never easy. But I'm excited. I'm excited about today because there's a lot of good stuff in that letter. And even though it was written specifically to Timothy, like I've already said, there's really good messages that we can learn from as well. So let's start by reading the first seven verses together. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been sent out to tell others about the life that he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord, give you grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God that I serve with clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, and I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I know that, some, that the same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. I love the message in that passage. Like any good coach, uh, which if you don't know, I coach eighth grade basketball, uh, and that's a challenge all its own. Uh, but like any good or average coach, uh, I think things are more easily understood when they're broken into chunks. So let's break this down into four, four lessons for today. First, we need to de detain our faith. Yes, detain your faith. Do you know what it means to detain something? Well, if you don't, I looked it up. Webster's says that it's to hold or keep as if, or keep in, or as if in custody, to keep back, to restrain, especially from proceeding. Basically, you're not letting it go. So you have this faith, you have this foundation, and you're not supposed to let it go. Hang on to it. Hold firm to it. Do not let it escape your capture. You've, you've brought it into your life. Now don't let it walk away. Never let it leave your side. Never let it leave your presence. Always keep your eyes on it. Always keep your ears listening for it. Keep it with you. I also teach, so I'm going to break some things. I'm going to be asking for some classroom participation today. Okay, and I expect that when I ask you to raise your hands, you actually do. Okay, so... Raise your hand with me if you've been going to church consistently, and I, by consistently, I mean regularly, at least three out of four Sundays a month for the last year. Been going to church? Yeah, okay. Uh, keep your hand up if you've been going to church consistently for the last five years. How about 10? 15? 25? Front row, put your hands down, liars. Okay, now... I know that there are some of us in this group that, would say, that could keep their hand up because you've been going to church your whole life. I've been a part of that. I'm a part of that group myself. But here's the thing. The reason I ask you that is because if you've been going to church consistently for a year, it means that you've heard 52 messages if you've been here every week. 52 sermons. Five years, you've heard 260 sermons. Ten years, you're at 520 sermons. 
If you've been going to church regularly or consistently, for 15 years, you've heard over 780 sermons. And for those of you going to church 25 years or longer, we're looking at over 1,300 sermons. 1,300! Can you believe that? So that means that depending on how long you've been going to church, you've learned about Jesus hundreds, if not thousands of times on Sunday mornings alone. That doesn't include youth group. That doesn't include your journey group. That doesn't include getting together and talking about Jesus uh, when you get coffee. That doesn't include any training that you got at home with your family. For many of us in, our room, in this room, our lives have been filled with teaching about God, Christian living, and about the Bible. But if you're anything like me, then there's something that, or here's something that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. You see, psychological research shows that the most important factor for determining whether a memory sticks or not is how emotionally engaging it is. Some people might hear that and think, well, then the teacher needs to adjust the teaching style. or They need to do a better job at making people feel strong emotions so they carry it with them. But I don't think that's the case. I think that we can get something out of any message. Because most of the time, as we learned last week, it comes down to your heart. It's a heart issue. For example, if, if you come to church and you're not engaged, you feel bored, you're counting down the minutes until the message is over so you can go home and watch football or go on that shopping trip, play video games, watch Netflix, whatever. If that's you, the statistics show then that you're not going to remember this message by tomorrow. And if that's the attitude that you always come to church with, well, then you've wasted dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of hours in church. The number one excuse that I've found, both in, in talking to people and researching on the internet, the number one excuse for, that I can find for why people aren't confident in their faith is because they feel they just don't know enough. They don't feel connected to God because they don't know enough about their faith or about God himself or about the Bible. But the truth is, the information is there. The information is there. It has the potential to stick, but we have to be intentional about absorbing it. We're dry sponges. The Word is living water, and we have to be intentional about dipping our sponge into the, the living water. We have to decide in our own hearts that it's worth holding on to and not just squeezing it out to dry out again. We have to decide that what we learn about God is vital to our lives. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 1, 5-7. He says very specifically, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother and your mother. He's saying, listen here, Timmy, look. I, I don't know why I'm doing an accent. <laughs> Timmy, look. I know that you have everything you need to teach the word and live out your faith because I've already seen it. I've seen it in your grandmother. And you know, believe it or not, I saw it in your mother. I know what you've been learning at home. I know what you've been taught to do. Timothy was raised to value scripture and seek God's word and direction for his life. Paul was convinced that he had everything he needed to do what God was calling him to do because he saw that his faith was sincere. He made it a priority. He made his faith a priority. And let's take a moment to be honest with ourselves. Have you decided that what you learn from God's word is valuable? Have you made the, the active choice to make 
God's word important to you? To place it high on your priority list? If you're a Christian, hear this today, right now. What we learn in scripture is absolutely vital to living out the purpose that God has for our lives. To living a life on purpose, being intentional with the days that you've been given is critical. As I said, I, uh, I coach eighth grade basketball at Shanahan Junior High, and unfortunately our season came to an end while the Lardy family rooted against us. Um, they were on the, the Cole City side of the fan base, so I'm going to be having a, a really stern conversation with them later on. Um, but I did get a nice hug on the sideline uh, after we lost, which made me feel better. Um, but coaching, coaching is really fun. It, it depends on who's in your program and who's got skill, who's got talent, and how much can you pull out of kids, um, especially at this level. How much, how much can you push them? How much can you get them to believe in running the right plays, taking the right shots, trusting each other, as well as trusting me? Now, that trust is built up in practice. It's not built during a game. That, that, those games, while fun, I mean, that's, that's the main fun of basketball, right, is playing the games, but you don't know what to do unless you've practiced. And if I, as the coach, walk into practice every day and say, yeah, guys, uh, let's say we got uh, 90 minutes today, so we'll do like 20 minutes shooting, and then uh, the rest of it you can just have to yourself. I just hang out, do some one-on-one, maybe get some rebounding in, you know, go get them. Well, then I've completely wasted not only my time, but I've wasted their time. I've given them no instruction on how to get better, and I've told them, yeah, these things you might want to do. You might want to get better at shooting. You might want to get better at rebounding, and, and one-on-one, I guess, is an important skill. No. If I, if I, as the coach, don't direct them and say, this is why we're doing something, or if in the middle of running a play, if someone gets it wrong, if I just scream, terrible, terrible, get on the line and run, I'm not teaching them, which I did do, uh, but, but I'm not teaching them why. Why is it important that we don't make these same mistakes over and over again? Why is it important that you make that cut at the exact time that the play is designed to make you cut? Why is it important that when you go to set a screen, you actually set a screen on a man instead of just in space? I'm sorry, I'm getting too coachy. I backed off. My heart's pounding a little bit, okay? But those practices, those lessons that you learn in those grueling practices are all for preparation for the game so that when there are two minutes on the clock and you're down four points, you know what to do, you know how to execute, and you believe that you're not out of the game. You believe and you know confidently, if we execute, we can win. It's the same thing with the word. In times of difficulty and struggle, we need to remember who God is. It's our faith in Jesus that sustains us and enables us to live this life on purpose. So, hold fast to your, hold fast to your faith. Detain your faith. The second thing we need to remember to do is to deliver the good news. The gospel literally means good news. So share it. Run through the streets like a paper boy. They used to do, right? Extra, extra, read all about it. I mean, literally, this is what we should be doing. We should be excited about it. If you are a Christian, then you've been given a divine calling to do so. Not to put this, not to use this as a booster seat, not to use it as a placeholder, not to use it as a paperweight, but to use it to share it, to share that word. We have a divine calling to take part 
in God's redemption of the world by telling people about the good news, not saying, and continuing to watch TV. But sometimes we're afraid to tell the world what we believe. In fact, I would say now more than ever. Sometimes I dare say that some of us are even afraid to claim that we're Christian. I think of it like this. Uh, How many of you have been to Six Flags? Again, classroom participation. Okay, you all get an A. Good job. If you've been to Six Flags and you've walked around um, enough, I'm sure that you've seen the character artist. The character artist uh, usually only can do one of these at a time, but it'll either be one person or a couple sitting together just, you know, waiting for their caricature to get done. And behind them are the display of all the examples that they have. So those pictures... I can't lie to you. I avoid that stand. Um, one, I think they're weird. I don't like them. They're a little creepy, and, and frankly, they're, they're hard to look at, especially if it's a picture of you. Why? Well, because it's, it's supposed to look like you, but the artist highlights what seems to be your most obvious features and exaggerates them to make it something that somewhat looks like you, but definitely is not you. It makes you a little self-conscious about whatever the character artist chooses, Right? Anybody know who this is? This is Frodo Baggins, okay? Frodo is uh, the terrible, terrible, terrible main character of my favorite book and movie series, Lord of the Rings. Frodo makes horrible decisions, okay? If he didn't have Samwise Gamgee, again, I'm sorry, I, I gotta stop. Frodo is a, is a hobbit, so he's about, in the movie, he should be about this tall, and uh, gentle. Uh, you can tell that he's kind of got these, these gentle features, soft cheeks, wavy hair, kind of unassuming, like weak, and that's kind of the whole point. But then we throw a character up here, a caricature that, that busts out his neckline, and, and those eyes, those eyes that are, I mean, he's, Elijah Wood's got big eyes, but are they that big? I mean, everything about this picture takes what's on the left and extorts it to unbelievable and creepy and weird uh, dimensions. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. You can tell who that's supposed to be, but let's be honest, it's, it's not nice to look at. On the, the wall next to your stairs as you're heading up to your bedroom, this will give you nightmares if you hang it, right? That's what culture does to our Christianity. Culture picks out what are perceived to be the worst characteristics of our faith and paints a portrait that, frankly, is hard to look at. It's hard to swallow, in part because it's not true. It's something that we're afraid of being associated with. We're afraid of being associated with caricature Christianity. So we try to shrink into the background and, and praise Jesus when we're in this room, in the car, maybe at home. But then we go to work, we go to school, we go get our hair cut, and we're, we're tentative. We don't want others to necessarily see that because we don't want them to place us in a box. That's not, what, that's not what Paul encouraged Timothy to do at all. After encouraging Timothy to remember that what his faith was founded on, here's what he wrote. Never be ashamed to tell others about the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength that God gives you, be ready to suffer for me the for the sake of the good news. For God saved us, and he called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the, before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he's made all this, 
plan to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of life and immortality through the good news. God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. This is why I'm suffering here in prison. He's keeping that perspective. I'm not ashamed of it, for I know in the one whom I trust. And I'm sure that he's able to guard what I have entrusted him until the day of his return. In our culture, again, the title of Christian has this negative stigma. I mean, there are many ideas here about what we think and what we feel and what we believe. And sometimes those ideas, those caricatures, make us look really bad. But that doesn't give us an excuse to remain silent. We should be unashamed of everything in this book. We should be unashamed to declare at the top of our lungs that we have a Savior, that everyone is in need of that Savior, and that we have the key to share with the world. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. There's a God in heaven who sacrificed his Son for us. Jesus was bruised, he was beaten, he was bloodied, and he died for our sins. Not for his, he didn't sin. He died for us. He paid the price for something that we could never pay. The spotless lamb was broken on the cross, but he didn't stay there. Jesus defeated death and bridged the gap between us and our heavenly father, and now we get to be a part of his kingdom forever. That's good news. That's exciting. Why are we ashamed of that? Why do we sit silent? Why do you look forward to talking about the Super Bowl? But this, oh no, that's too touchy of a subject. And you may be thinking, I know what I should do, but I don't know if I could ever actually do it. And you're not alone, clearly. We all struggle. Most of us have a hard time sharing the gospel because we don't know how we could ever be brave enough to do it. But listen to this. Luke 22. They arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. Peter joined him there. The servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I, I am not. No. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them, because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even knew me. After Peter left the courtyard, he wept bitterly. Before Jesus was arrested, beaten, and crucified, he told Peter that he'd deny him three times. Peter swore that he wouldn't, that he knew the mission, he knew the goal. I would never, I'll die with you. But he caved. He was afraid of being associated with Jesus. He feared for his life, and on some level, we can all understand where he's coming from, right? I mean, who would be willing to die, literally, physically die, for what you believe? I hope that those of us that would say, yeah, I would, are sincere, but you never really know until the moment comes. Here's the thing. We abandon our faith for far less. We abandon our faith when we're feeling pressure with money, when we're feeling pressures with relationships, when we're feeling pressures at work. Heck, we abandon our faith when we have tough drives to church. 
but we don't have to stay there. We can be bold, and I can prove it to you. On the day of Pentecost, after the ascension of Jesus, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began preaching in tongues to an assembly that they had gathered there. And the funny thing is that the, the religious leaders of the time looked and said, all these followers of Jesus, we knew that they were crazy. Look at them. They're all drunk, talking in these languages. They don't even know. They're just slurring their words, all right? But Peter immediately denies this. He refers back to the Old Testament scripture and appealed to his fellow Israelites telling them about how Jesus was the fulfillment of that scripture. And he boldly shared the truth about who Jesus was and challenged those who listened to be made new. Thousands of people placed their faith in Jesus as a result. In Acts chapter 2, we read that. He says, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, your children, to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. That's the power of the gospel. Peter went from fearing for his life to resolutely sharing the good news, no matter what the consequences were. Paul overcame persecution. Timothy continued to work regardless of the stigma that clouded around the message. They could have never done this on their own, which brings us to the third thing we need to do. We need to depend on God's power. When we hear the stories of Paul, Peter, and Timothy— or any of the disciples, we can't believe what they went through, what they did, and still remain faithful. If we walk into a restaurant and there's too long of a wait, we leave. We have a panic attack if we go to Starbucks and they're out of cold brew. What am I going to do? If you're a Christian, you have access to the power of the Holy Spirit. That means that power that was accessed by those disciples is the same power that you have before you now. Trust in him and you'll begin to care more about what your father's calling you to do than what you're stressing about in your life or what the world is telling you is important. You need his power to live out the call to follow and serve God. And Paul encouraged Timothy with this truth. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison for him, with the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because it was his plan from the very beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Put yourself in that chair. He'd been thrown into prison multiple times. He's been shipwrecked more than once. He's been beaten and stoned, and yet he persevered. We need to be ready, ready for battle. The reason I have a dandelion in the background is because the dandelion is something that is the mortal enemy of anyone who has a yard, okay? <laughs> While kids see beautiful little flowers and, and bees see food, the yard owner sees a mortal enemy. We need to root it out. We need to destroy it. We'll do anything to get rid of those stupid dandelions, right? Well, here's the thing about the dandelion. You'll never get rid of them. I've come to that uh, admission on my own. No matter how hard I try, 
there's always going to be a dandelion popping up somewhere. Why? Because even if you spray Roundup, you're not, you may kill that dandelion all the way to the root, but you're also killing everything around it. So you don't use Roundup, right? That's what the world tries to do to the message. They see the message and they try and spray Roundup on you because they, they see that they can easily attack you, but they also suck the life out of everything else around it. What the dandelion does, because there are others fighting the same fight, trying to survive, trying to thrive and grow, they fold up for protection, they blossom and seed, and then a little kid comes along and goes, and that message is spread everywhere. It's spread everywhere. Those, ba- those dandelions are just as ready for battle as you are. So, be a dandelion. Finally, to finish today, I'm going to encourage you to dare to grow. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching that you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the, pre- the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. He expanded on this idea in, cha- in, verse, I'm sorry, in uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. You must remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know that they are true. For you know that you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and what makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So, next week, we have an opportunity before us to dive into Rooted, to do this all-encompassing, all-church effort to make a move and grow in our faith. So as we begin Rooted, I'm going to encourage you, don't just do the work. Don't just check the box. Read it. Write it. Live it. As we begin rooted, detain your faith. Deliver the good news. Depend on God's power. And dare to grow. Don't lose sight of your actual purpose in life. It's not your job. It's not your status. It's not your own comfort that makes you who you are. It's your identity as a child of God. That's who you are. And what we do is just a mechanism for sharing Christ with as many people as we can. Be changed and be the change. Live your life on purpose. Let's pray. God, the world around us wants to crush you. And oftentimes we feel like that crushing goal is against us. So we cower and we cave and, and we allow the excuses to take over and we allow the opportunities that, that Satan seizes on to overwhelm us and, and cause us to either go astray or, or hold the message in. But God, give us confidence. The confidence that we have by knowing you. The confidence that we have in knowing that you're with us. The confidence that we can have in knowing the end result. You've defeated the grave. You've defeated sin. 
You've defeated Satan. Help us to live out your purpose in fighting him until we get to see you again. pray this in your name. Amen. Why don't you all go ahead and stand up? It's funny. So, ironic, very similar situation to you recently. Sitting, getting my hair cut, and the girl, I'm not kidding, leans over and she's like, I don't understand. What is the purpose of life? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Really? You're were asking you at, me this now? Were you at Juliet? No. <laughs> it was your She's sister. Really and I said, Shelly, <laughs> go talk to your mom. No. <laughs> Every Tell family's got to have a black shirt. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> no. I, the thing I love about that question is we, we, should all, we should all know the answer to that question. And the fact that we don't know the answer to that question is the reason so many of us are in a drift. We're in a drift right now because we, even as Christ followers, we're still kind of going, what is this all about? That's a huge piece of what we're going to be learning over the next 10 weeks. But like you said, some of us have already heard thousands of sermons on this. And and I really think it comes down to, when am I going to get serious about this? Heard a story again recently, just, ah, these stories make me crazy, of another person I admire in their 60s coming toward the end of ministry, and they just, they blew up their life, blew up their life. And I'm like, when are you going to learn that it's not just about the way we start, it's about finishing well, and the middle is where it's all lived. It, you know, like you said, the way we practice is the way we play the game. And if we're practicing a mess, we're going to play the game a mess. That whole idea of living on purpose. So we're singing the song this morning, Come to the Altar. And I think when we hear that song, we think of this beautiful, we're coming to the feet of Jesus and all. I think of the picture of the Apostle Paul, where he says, your life is a living sacrifice. So as we're singing the song this morning, think of yourself crawling up on the altar because the way we live is dead to ourselves and alive to Jesus. Let's sing together. Well, I know that when you saw me, you were like, sweet, we're getting out early. Sorry. Um, One of the things that drives me nuts as a coach is when a kid makes a careless mistake, throw a lazy pass, not do what they're assigned to do, and they turn to me and they look and they're like, my bad, my bad. I know, I'm watching the game. I know you made the mistake. But the point is, why did you make the mistake? Ultimately, it was carelessness. It was carelessness that allowed you to throw that lollipop pass. Or it was carelessness not knowing the play. It was carelessness with the way that they carried themselves when responding to an official. Don't be careless. Live life on purpose. And because my season ended yesterday, I'm very sad. Um, So... When I pull guys in, like we're ready to go out on the court, um, we're all on the same page, and we show that by everybody putting their hands in, or usually it's up now, and we all, like, Indians on three, one, two, three, Indians. I'm going to do that, and I know it's hokey, I know it's cheesy, but please do this for me. Uh, So on the count of three, I want us all to say, live on purpose, okay? So put your hand in if you're in, only if you're in, all right? Only if you're on the same page. Ready? Live on purpose on three, one, two, three, live on purpose. Have a great Sunday.